It's gone sideways. I'm here with Danny Shannon. Dan the man. Hello. Hey, Andrew. Thanks so much, mate. No worries. It's good to have you in here. Um, mate, you are a social media icon. You're blowing up everywhere at the moment. You're all over the news. Yeah. Get there, man. <laughs> Just grinding, Andrew. Um, I've had some amazing opportunities come up. And, um, yeah, like my, my, my social media has been a little bit slow on the growth lately, but um, I've got big dreams, right? Yeah. Awesome. Um, well, yeah, I saw that you were on Channel 10 last night and you've been in heaps of news stories at the moment. As I said to you before we started recording, you were kind of like perfect for this podcast because, um, I mean, what I try and do is talk to people about times when their life has gone a bit pear-shaped and then how they've kind of come back from it. And, um, I mean, your story fits that to a T, right? Yeah, look, it's funny you say that because on my way here, I was just like I, was, I walked here. I don't know why. I decided to walk here. Oh, well, I do. I've been on a bit of a mission since New Year's Eve. I quit the bungers. I must be 16 days or 15 days off to smoke. <laughs> How's that going? And it's good. I'm doing really good and I've been eating well too and part of that is exercising twice a day, which is bullshit. But anyway, I'm doing it and that's why I walk. But it just gave me some time to myself and I was thinking about just all the stuff that's going on. Like it puts such a smile on my face too. I can't explain. I'm like I'm really... Does it does it feel surreal sometimes? Oh, it does, man. <laughs> it feels so surreal because I was actually walking past Glebe on my way here and I walked past the place of my last employment. Not the actual building, but it just made me reflect that, you know, I'm finally um, kind of self-funded doing stuff on my own and it's fucking working. It's starting to work and it just puts the biggest follow-up. That must feel I amazing. I love what I'm doing so much, man. So let's um so let's just go through the numbers. So you were uh, previously what, a drug addict for, what, for over a decade, for fifteen yeah, years, was seven, it? Seventeen, 17 years, yeah, about seventeen years. Yeah. And was that mostly heroin or other drugs as well? What was what were you? Well, uh, they, they call yeah they talk about the drug of choice. You know, um, heroin was definitely my drug of uh, choice. Um, but I dabbled in every single <laughs> drug known to man in Australia. Jack of all trades, you know. Yeah. I always wanted to get on the crack, but we never quite had that here in Australia. But um, I know you could make it. But anyway, let's not get off topic. But yeah, yeah any substance I could get my hands on, but heroin was always my. Last drug of each day. I would be finishing off on that if I could. Yep. And then you and you spent some time in prison over that period? Yeah, about over half, between the age of 18 and 28, I spent the majority of that time locked up. Yeah, fuck. Yeah. And, and now you've been, what, clean and sober for about 13 years? 13 years, four months and one day, but who's counting? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I like that. Yeah. Well, congratulations. Yeah, thank you very much, Andrew. I know that because yesterday was the 15th. Um, I believe, and um, yeah, that would have been my form. Yes, thirteen. Yeah, <clears throat> I mean, that's pretty incredible, right? To be clean and sober for that long after so long of using, and, and not just so long of using, but I, I honestly attempted rehab fifty times. Like, I've been to every public rehab system in New South Wales. You know, I could rattle off like fifteen of them. Right now, some of them aren't even open anymore, like Basement 82, um, Cumberland Hospital, uh, Ward 64, McKinnon House. Um, I was known on a first-name basis at some of those places. The thing is, for some reason, well, I know why. I had this beautiful mum who was always encouraging me to change, you know, and I would – oh, I guess I was a bit of a people pleaser. I just – 
I'd go and I'd straighten up and then I'd leave sort of thing, you know, but yeah. I was going to ask, I mean, what, at what point when you get to like double digits of going to rehab, <laughs> do you just think this is, this is a waste of time. I'm yeah, never going to yeah. get, I'm never going to turn it around. Yeah, it's a, it's, you make such a good point there because I would say to everyone just to never give up, you know, and actually I just never gave up. I don't think I ever thought about giving up. I, I was, I'm a trier, mate. I, um, I just kept trying. I knew most of those times I wasn't serious. Yeah. And to be honest, like even if I got close and I got a few days up and I fucked up again, I'd never really beat myself up. I just thought this is the life I've been dealt. But mm. then sure enough, one day I made a different decision, mate, for the first time in my life and I didn't pick up that next drug, you know. What was it that was different about that? One time that you just thought yeah. this is this is the last time I'm sure, coming around. Okay. Well, look, there was nothing different when you think about the way it went down. I started off in detox out of St. Leonard's Hospital, Herbert Street. Um, I took drugs into detox like I always did. I had my mobile phone on me, which I always, you know, I was doing all the things wrong. Um, when my drugs ran out, I got on the butte for a couple of days and. And that's, for some um, reason, buprenorphine, buprenorphine, yep. yeah, like a yep. maintenance, like a government um, issued heroin. Yeah, and um, and I started bringing up some some rehabs while I was in detox, and sure enough, made um, I managed to get sixty days up, and this is when I, mean, I don't know if you want me to, I can tell you like the day it really all it all changed. Yeah, you know, I, oh, it was Christmas Day, the twenty fifth of December two thousand nine. I I was in rehab, and I was um on my way home for a day leave. And to be honest, I didn't really want to go home. Sorry, Mum, but um, I didn't really want to go home because the shame and guilt attached to that stuff was pretty heavy. But everyone kind of talks about going home to family on Christmas Day. So I went and um, sure enough, I was sitting around the Christmas table, I mean the lunch table, eating lunch with my family and maybe, fam- um, you know, um, neighbours and there's about 15 of us there. And um, I just remember just feeling so... Much shame and guilt. And I left there that day and I thought, fuck this, I can't do it. I'm going to get on, you know. And I actually, I had it, I was all planned. I was going to get on. I'm standing up King's Cross at William Street on the corner of William Street and George Street. To my right was King's Cross. I knew 100% I could go get on. And, and I'd made the decision I was going to do it, but across the road was the bus to take me back to rehab. And that day, for the very first time in my life, I, I just thought, I thought about, well, I think it's the first time I actually thought of the consequence. I thought, you know, if I go and get on, I know what's going to happen. I'm going to either end up back in rehab, back in jail probably, or dead, or for the first time I could, you know, not get on. And I didn't get on and, mate, a miracle happened that day. I've basically never came close to using again. I, I know how strong that draw of addiction can be, particularly like when you already made up your mind that you were going to do it and you'd yeah, already headed in that direction. Yeah. To then pull out then just seems wild because it's, um, it's not normal. You know, it's not normal. <laughs> right? Yeah, that's so true, and that's I think that's the the real turning point when you've decided to do something and somehow getting the strength to change your mind. Yeah, we talk about that all the time, especially I, I'm a work, I was a worker in rehabilitation for a long time. I get the point what you just said, but he actually cared. Mm. Not do what you decided to, yeah. Right? It's, yeah, it's true. It does happen. Yeah, I believe you. I, I don't. I can't think of any time when I've been able to change my mind after yeah. I've decided. Once mentally, yeah. I've already walked down that path, and now I'm yeah. just following through on it. Um, so that's incredible, right? Yeah. And and maybe that that was such a strong 
like that was such a mental break from from the norm for you that your brain just rewired to say this is my priorities have changed. Yeah, man. Look, to be honest, for the next three days, it felt like I did pick up because it's like for the next three days, I remember being full of anxiety because. I'd fucked up. I was going to get on. I'd made the decision. I had the cash. I was going to do it. So I knew I was going to do this again maybe in five days' time or next week, and sh- but it didn't didn't happen. So you had remorse for an action that you hadn't even committed yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Wow. When they say remorse, it's like it felt like I'd relapsed. It felt like it so much because I knew I was going to again, mm. but I didn't. <laughs> so I don't know how you – I, I want to just say too – Andrew, it's not as if it was just like a miracle happened and it just left me. Like I've worked my fucking ass off since that day yep. to maintain what I do have as well, you know. But um, the miracle is that I haven't come close to picking up a drug since that day and that was literally 13 years and three months ago now. Mm. Do you still feel like um, you you have to be on your toes all the time just to – Not at all. Man. No? Like, but and I get asked that question almost every single day, yeah. and I like I understand a lot of people do still feel like that. Maybe with a decade recovery, but no, like when I say the obsession and compulsion was lifted, like it really was. Like I can walk. I don't want to get cocky, but like for example, I can walk into a, a bathroom. This is probably one of the biggest triggers: a public toilet where I've shot up heroin. Yeah. You know? Um. For some reason that. Eerie feeling walking into um, those public toilets really brings back some vivid memories. Mm. But, mate, the memory isn't to go and get on. It's just like, it's almost like, wow, it's cool. It's, it's hard to explain. Yeah. But no, man, I, I don't. Um, and I can only put it down to me really working hard to maintain what I have. There's a lot, a lot, a lot of things that I do on a daily basis. Um, that kind of counteract that behaviour, I think. I think for me the strongest draw cards to staying on a path away from addiction are um, I think living with purpose. I think having some kind of thing that I want to do with my life yeah. is strong. I think uh, exercise is so important for me just to maintain, um, I think, mental resilience and also just um, calm, satisfaction within me. And then uh, I guess my, my support network, my friends, family and, and other people that I interact with that are positive people and, and keep me wanting to stay within the life that I have. Um, are, are they similar things for you or have you got different things? Yeah, well, yeah I love I agree with all, all of those things. There's, there's five things. There's five things for me. I think, um, you know, they say the opposite to addiction is connection, I think. Yeah. Um, get out of the house, you're at home with the killer, you know, because the more I isolate, and thank God I haven't for the last 13 years, but that was a big part of my active addiction, being alone, you know. Mm. All my mates, I had no mates, you know. My best mate was my co-offender. I used to rob him and he'd rob me, you know. That was the, <laughs> the basis of our relationship. So, yeah, the um, connection is a huge thing for me. Um, 12-step fellowship attendance, like therapy, some type of therapy was a big part for me. Um, I found like a, some kind of a higher power as well, um, you know, something bigger and better than me. I'm not saying I'm, it's, it was, I didn't see the light or anything like that, but I had this mad connection, this sort of spiritual connection with um, the universe, with the moon, strangely enough. The moon. Um, giving back yep. has been number one. The most important thing I can do is to give back to the human race. That does some magic for me. The more I give, 
the more the universe provides. And I think um, I only keep what I have by giving it away. Well, you seem to be the busiest man on TikTok Live, right? Yeah. You're up there every yeah, night pink, yes. just talking to people and, I mean, talking positivity and about your experiences. Um, is that is that part of it? Did you get a lot of value out of that? It definitely is part of it. Man. Like, um, that's a really good point. Like, it's almost like I have to do that. I want, when I say I have to do that, I don't have to do anything. Today I've got choices. I can do whatever the fuck I want. But if I want to keep what I've got – um, I feel like there's a bunch of stuff I do, and that I would class that as my service. You know, I'd, I'd class that as me giving back. Um, look, these days I do, you know, a lot of battle and tours on there and make a bit of coin as well. But like, and that keeps me coming back too. But I swear to God, if it wasn't for that, I would still commit at least an hour on there because for so many reasons, I love, I love it. I most the biggest reason is I just fucking love it. You know? Do you get any positive? Messages from people from from social media that um, say, "Hey, Danny, you've made a difference in my life." Just yeah. you talking, man. Um, I, I see you know my inbox is full. Um, I haven't checked it today, but each day I have to clear twenty, thirty messages, and most of those messages are people saying, "Danny, I'm fucked. Help!" And Danny, you've helped me so much. Um, I'm clean this amount of time. Yeah, it's crazy. It's it's a beautiful, beautiful thing, you know. How do you how do you handle those when it says I'm fucked? I need your help. I mean, is that that must be quite a a, a burden to shoulder if it's yeah, happening man. All the time. You know, it's a real burden when someone's telling me they're going to kill themselves. Fuck. Um, and that's happened to me. Oh man, it happens maybe sometimes one day a week, you know. Um, Fuck, man. But um, I basically respond to every single message with the same attitude, and I respond to every single message with an audio. Reply, it's usually about 30 seconds to a minute, and um, it's the same spill every single time. It's different if someone wants to take their life. I always ask them then, you know, like, do you have a plan? And I also let them know that I do care about them and do they have somebody to reach out to? And I always point them in the right direction of helpline and, and making contact because I ain't no professional like that. I'm just a bloke in recovery doing my best to share yeah. a message of love and hope to anyone struggling. You yeah, know? you wake up, you go to the cafe to get a coffee in the morning and then someone sending you a message saying, Danny, I'm going to kill myself. Yeah, that's that's a tough burden for anyone to deal with, let alone someone who's not a trained professional, right? That's Bro, to, honestly, Andrew, you, this <coughs> this is going to sound selfish of me, but yeah, it's fucked. Like, especially if they're not even – Serious and they're doing it for a cry for help. And let's face it, like sometimes that happens, mm. yeah, and people just want attention, but you can never determine that. So you always have to give it all your heart, you know? Yep. Um, yeah, it's fucked. I think it's a really – anyway, you gotta treat, it's, it's life, mate. you got to treat everyone like it's legitimate, oh, right? Oh, 100%, yeah. of course, and I do. And I don't know the difference, but um, all I know is, yeah, it's hard. It's heavy. It's a heavy burden, like you said, you know? Mm. Um, so let's go back to, I mean, where it all began. So you grew up in was it Cabra Manor? Yeah, I always say Cabra. It's just true. I went to Sacred Heart Primary School, which is Cabra Matter, smack bang in the middle of Cabra. Um, I'll just say, I remember, you know, I know Cabra Matter is like a big Asian community now. Um, but back in the day, I remember um, we had three three Vietnamese boys in my class, Wee, Fee and Tree. And I always talk about that because I always remember them boys, you know. And then as growing up um, – it was like that my entire young, oh, what do you call it, primary school. Yeah. Um, and then I just think back to my days of the carnage in Cabra when I first picked up the heroin <laughs> and um, and then walk 
Walk was shooting me up in a dingy little flat in the back of Cabramatta with no furniture, injecting me with heroin for the first time. And just comparing, like, the comparison from kindergarten. And I literally remember kindergarten compared to that moment where um, my life changed forever. Mate. How old were you when you first had heroin? Um, almost 16. Yeah, late 15. That's so fucking young. Yeah, look, well, I mean, it's, yeah, it's not, you know, like, it's actually not that young. What about the poor kid stories? I actually read a report this morning about um, a kid that, um, <sighs> Man, my life has been um, nothing compared to some of the, mm. the, you know, the shit that happens to some of the kids these days, right? So, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's young, but, and I think about my five year old daughter and my 21 year old son, like, yeah, I guess any age is shocking, you know? Yeah, but like any adult giving some young kid heroin is putrid, isn't it? It really is. Putrid, and do you know what? It's all just about the money. Of course, it was. You know, he was a drug dealer. Um, he didn't have any feelings, and not just give. Yeah, like in injecting, like, like that was the day my life changed forever. That day, um, that I was said sitting in that flat, um, in this dingy little flat with no no furniture, sitting on the floor getting injected with heroin. That was the day my life definitely changed. If up until that point. I picked up pretty much every other drug, but um, I wouldn't say my life was unmanageable completely until that day, you know, and then it changed forever, mate. Were you still living with your parents at that stage? Yeah, man. Oh, it's a long story. There's so much. Of it. I was in and out, you know. Mm. I was in and out. My my mum and dad had split up um, by that time, and I think I was living in the garage at my mum's house or my dad's house. I was always swapping in between. Yep. Um, sometimes I'd go MIA for a couple of months. But, yeah, I I, I always did have support of my mum's my, my this beautiful, loving soul who was kind of always there um, with the good stuff. My dad, big shout-out to Shonky. His nickname's Shonky. Like, he taught me every single thing um, I shouldn't know, you know? Yeah. It was – he's a good guy and, like, he was always there for me in some way, shape, or form. Like he'd buy their stolen equipment, for example, you know. He'd always wake up like that, but not it sounds with more emotional like, support. It sounds like more like the guy that you want as your dodgy uncle rather 100%. than your father, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, <laughs> that's it. Yeah. <laughs> Old Shonky. Mm. So what was life like for you around that age when so you first had heroin and then were you – at school still? Were you holding in a job? What was happening? No, I wasn't at school anymore. I was um, I was a, I was a skater. I was a skateboard rider. We used to, I used to have a lot of friends up until that stage, right? Um, and when I say a lot of friends, I, I, I say I was a popular kid. Part of it was because I was a pretty good skateboard rider, and um, we used to build ramps at my house. We used to knock off all the building sites around and build mad skate parks. In my backyard, you know. That's cool. My mum would let me do that or my dad would let me do that. So I always had skate ramps. So everyone would come to my house and we'd skate. And because I had them there, I guess I had access to most. I was pretty good at it too, you know. But um, so my life was really good, mate. It was really good. I was on it. Um, but it slowly, well, very quickly um, changed from the moment I picked up heroin, that's mm -hmm. for sure. Like 
from being a really popular kid to less popular to less popular to absolutely no one. Probably by the age of 17, there was no one left in my life, you know. Um, it was just me and my crime buddies, you know, because I had to support. I had to work really hard to maintain a heroin habit. Yeah. You know, so, like, I mean, how often were you using it every day? Oh, every single day, of every- course. It wasn't a day it, that existed in 17 years that I wasn't stoned on heroin Unless I was in jail and I was just totally incapacitated. But most days in jail, I was stoned as well, you know. So how are you funding it, right? Yeah, crime, mate. Um, used to break into schools. Um, used to break into every factory in fucking Wetherill Park. Yep. Um, um, stealing cars. And it was all just um, drug-related crimes, you know. Were you having fun when you were doing it, at least? Um, yeah, man, I guess so. You know what? I, I actually have no regrets. I guess I, when we say I've got no regrets, I wish there was people I hadn't hurt yep. along my journey, of course. Apart from that, Andrew, I've got no regrets about anything. And thank God, like, because that's, I think, a bit plays a big part in me being such a happy guy today, you know? Yep. Um, I wouldn't be here right now sitting here talking to you about my life if it wasn't for my life. It doesn't, you know? Exactly right. It's fucking brilliant. So, yeah, no regrets, mate. I think... I mean, I talked about that a lot on this podcast is that people had to go through the shit that they went through in their life to get to the good point where they're at now. But I also think when you stand there, when you're on social media and you talk about this stuff or you talk about it anywhere, people only listen because of where you've come from, right? Like when people are um, struggling with addiction themselves or they have a loved one, right, they're they're able to put them onto you as someone who can talk about this because – you're not some cop. You're a guy who's been through the ringer and and survived it, mm. right? Yeah, it's extremely powerful, and it's like you're right, and they can relate. Yeah, that's the, that's the magic. They can relate to where you've been, and even though I say no regrets, of course it was it was. I always say seventeen years of the pain, hurt, and misery. You know, it was kind of like all shit, and it was like all good because I was constantly fucked up and had some drama going on, but I was constantly stoned as well. So. I don't know. Like it's, I often say it's just felt like it was the cards have been dealt, you know? Yep. But yeah, people can relate to that and they know because, and honestly, I don't think there's much I can't relate to, you know? I haven't been through everything. Yeah. Um, definitely. In fact, I think my story was quite, um, yeah, well, minimal compared to some, you know, some kids these days, that's for sure. But, <coughs> but yeah. I've seen photos of you from like back then and you were so <laughs> – you looked completely different, right? Yeah, but you're sure. like a skinny little sick yeah. runt, right, yeah. weren't you? Yeah, oh. man. I, I entered recovery in 2009, 60 kilos, bro. 60 kilos ring and wet looking like a half-sucked aspirin. You know? <laughs> um, and, and like I just – I remember back then too, 60 kilos and – Oh, my, anyway, I quickly put white weight on. I was eighty before you know it. Next minute, I'm a hundred. You know, at the moment, I'm about a hundred and two, hundred and three kilos. But you're solid now. Yeah. You look healthy, I'm right? I'm lucky, bro. I've been training every day pretty much for the last ten years. Um, I live across the road from the gym. Um, oh, yeah. Like we said before, you know, physical health, you know, mental health, and spiritual health are all really important things in my program. But yeah, I love, I love. Who I am right now, you know, a bit heavy but strong, you know. 
happy. Yeah, no, happy, mate. Yeah. It's perfect, man. <laughs> uh, it reminds me of when when Jeff Morgan was on here. Like, he's one of those guys that seems always, like, happy, like, as the Energizer bunny, he right? Is. Just full of yeah. full of beans. Um, yeah. And you strike me as similar, just a guy who's just very happy with where he's at. I was having a discussion last night with Jeffrey Morgan. Funny you should mention him. And one thing I love about Jeffrey, the minute he encounters somebody, he goes straight into this mode, which you just <laughs> remind, reminded me of it. Like, and he just delivers value. Like, he just does. He, I don't know, it's his mindset. He can't help it, I don't think. But mm. automatically, if you've got a problem, he'll start talking about the solution. And I really love how he does that, you know. Yep. Um, just while we're on that. To, um, last night we were in an interview with um, TikTok Gary as well. I want to just give a shout out to him. That man's incredible too, you know. Like everything I've learned on my social media stuff, like I get a lot. Of, I call Gary my TikTok mentor yep. and um, he calls me his recovery mentor. So we've got a cool little relationship going there. He's an absolute legend. And Russell as well, Russell Manta um, was also there. And that man... I used to speak to him every day or very regularly from custody while he was locked up doing a big whack. Um, and sure enough, here he is bu- building an empire too. I heard you speak on his podcast where he thanked you because, um, you know, he said that you added a lot of value to him when he was at your yeah, Glebe house, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah look, um, I'm, I was that staff member that would <laughs> – Always give out my number, of course, because where I used to work too, like we had no boundaries really, like with clients. Like, I'd, and anyway, then the clients would get locked up, and mate, I still get phone calls. This is a phone call from the Metropolitan Ramada Reception Center. <laughs> like, I get them weekly because of old clients who just um have my number and they they want to speak to someone. And Russell definitely used to do that on a regular basis, which is an absolute. Honor. And here's the thing, like, doesn't matter how busy you are, when you know you got that message, you just fucking stop what you're doing. You got six minutes and just listen, mate, you know? Yeah. Um, so yeah, absolutely. Good on Russ. This I'm trying to remember what the automated thing says. This is an automatic this this is a call from a correction center. Yeah, right? this, this is a phone call from the Ramadan um reception. Yeah, reminder reception center. Um, your phone call be monitored. If you do not wish to take this call, please hang up now. Yeah. Something like yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. I remember when I was in quarantine, locked up at Park Lee, and oh, quarantine. Yeah. How long ago was that? Uh, that was twenty twenty one. Oh, uh, wow! So a year and Shit, a half ago. That's not long ago, no. eh? No. <laughs> yeah, quarantine. So there's no quarantine back in my day. I was yeah. thinking that's COVID, and yeah, it was, it was right? COVID. Yeah, yeah, sure. yeah, yeah. So, and so you got put away for two weeks uh, on your own. Like I had no TV, no books, no nothing for like the first two weeks, and it sucks because that was like my first time getting locked up, and I was just stuck with my own thoughts for like, and um, you know, so you're so down on yourself anyway. Oh, that's beautiful. And you had nothing. Yeah, that's, yeah. yeah. Lock, locked down with nothing. No telly. No telly. Oh. No books. No nothing. Yeah, I'll be there, mate. For sure. Okay. What else have you got to do but think, you know? Yeah. And, um, yeah, well, I can't believe that was so recent. Look at you now. He's doing yeah. interviews on the podcast. Congratulations, <laughs> man. Thank you, mate. That's really inspiring too. And, yeah, I'd love to yeah, hear and, more about how you did that, how you turned it from that to this. Well, I just – I remember – Anytime I was laughing in prison, I was free. I forgot where I was, right? Sure. And so I was like, that's, so I was like, that's what I'm going to do with my life when I get out. I'm going to spend it trying to make people laugh. Good on you, man. And yeah, and yeah become a comedian. Yeah, I'm a comedian and podcaster and yeah, uh, 
You know, I still, <laughs> I'm still 36, living with my parents, but um, and you know, uh, but things things are on the up. You know, I I, yeah. I feel I I like who I am, and that's yeah. as a start. Yeah, that's you know? But when we're I blessed, when, we're blessed. We're very, very blessed. Lucky, very lucky. But but when I was locked up in quarantine, I remember I got called to uh, I, I I got pulled out of myself for a call, <clears throat> and it was a guy that I went to uni with who's a lawyer, and he wasn't even like my lawyer, but he saw when he was on the system for something else, he saw my oh, name. Bless you. And so he called me, and we had like a half an hour chat, and it was at a time when I I couldn't talk to anyone. And I was just going mental. So that, that wow. made such a huge difference to me oh, just yeah. to get like updates on like how the eels were going and the footy and uh, just to talk shit to someone for half an hour just to distract me and just remember that um, life wasn't ending was such a big thing. Man, it's funny you say that because, and I know this, after working in rehabilitation for, for 10 years, um, in that time, I took thousands of phone calls from loved ones, right? Loved ones who <coughs> would always get the runaround from most services they'd call, you know, because they just didn't fit the criteria. But one thing I used to do in that job is I used to just listen. Like, fuck it, I was getting paid for it. Let me speak to the people, you know, make some referrals if I can. But one thing they'd always say is they'd cry often, you know, thank you so much for listening. People yeah. just want to be heard. And that's just really related to what you were just saying there because you just wanted – you just wanted some time to be heard. Yep. Yeah. And and just to shoot. And it was just, it was so nice to see a familiar face. And to be, I was like, what the fuck are you doing here? And he was like, oh, mate, I saw your name on the list. I thought I'd just give you a quick. <laughs> and he was like, I bet you're bored. I thought, yeah, you. I, I thought I'd just call you for a chin wag. And yeah. that small act uh, of kindness yeah. uh, really stuck with me. Yeah, good. I agree. But I, And I think that's something about jail is that, um, small acts of kindness uh, actually become so big because, um, you know, you're just so used to getting let down all the time and just feeling down uh, and just feeling like everything's such a mess that just even guys offering you a, a bit of food from their buy-up when you know they've got fuck all themselves, just people just doing generous things um, just means the world. Well, being in jail through quarantine and lockdowns, it would have been so different, you know. Like, yeah, we used to get locked in the cell sometimes for, you know, 23 hours a day regularly, but still going through, yeah, quarant- like was it like that for three years or two years? Or- um, so you were put in two weeks of quarantine, then released into general population, okay. but then there'd be COVID outbreaks, right? Yeah. So I know some guys at Silverwater that uh, were locked up in their cell for like 50 days straight. Yeah. And no right. visits. That's a big thing. No visits. Um, they they were eventually allowed to do like um, iPad yeah, visits yeah, yeah. on screen, but I, I didn't great. get any face-to-face visits yeah. while the whole time I was wow. locked up. But um, And I, I there was a time at Long Bay where we were locked up for 10 days straight and um, we are only allowed out of our cell every second day for a shower and then every second day for a phone call. So we're having to have bird baths, washing ourselves in the sink, and um, yeah, it was it was hard. Like it's hard on a lot of people. Um, you know, they were got, when, when you when guys are COVID positive, they weren't even allowed out of their cell, so they'd locked away for two weeks pending COVID tests. You go loopy. Yeah, crazy times, man. <clears throat> 
Crazy times that was. Fuck. I mean, I I know I was dealing with the other side of it. You know, the repercussions of family members not being able to have access to their to their loved ones, um, and getting really angry too. You know, yeah. I was. I remember being a part of a couple of Facebook pages where people would be sharing, um, yeah, their frustrations. You know, because of that stuff, and yeah. Life. It was. I mean, it was hard enough even when you were in like, when I was in Gen Pop at fucking at Park Lee because there was only a handful of phones and there was just such animosity in the wing. Uh, you had to fucking fight tooth and nail just for yeah. a crack on the phone. Yeah. Uh, on a positive note, but a lot of people avoided fucking prison because of the whole <laughs> thing too. A yeah. lot of people got out of it because yeah, because there's no room and shit. Yeah, they were they were getting. Well, who was it? One of my mates. He kills fucking my daughter's mum, actually. But um, she um, someone was yeah on a few occasions ducked, you know, a prison sentence because it was just too full. Yeah, or because there was a dramas going on. There was a lot of that, and then, uh, that was made even more. That was made worse because like some jails, like Wellington, they had to close for a while because they had a a, a mice infestation. Oh, did you hear about that? that? Yeah, <clears throat> I did hear about that. We had a whole bunch of guys suddenly filling up all the. Cells at Park Lee because they'd all come from Wellow because um, mice were literally falling out of the roof. Yeah. They'd come back to their cell and their buy-up food was getting nibbled on by fucking mice. They were just everywhere. <laughs> and then eventually they got rid of the mice and moved everyone back. But, uh, yeah, I mean, that I think that was part of the reason why I didn't get sent back was because the jails are so were so full. Um, but... All right, so we talked about you being a teenager, right, and first getting into heroin and being a skatey, and then, um, I mean, when, when was, how long did it take? When, we, when were you first locked up? Yeah, I spent, well, I was first locked up at 16 in Cobbin Boys Home for Warrants. Yep. I'd written this. I actually, I don't clearly remember why, but I remember back then $100 a day you'd get locked up for, unless somebody paid your warrant or your fines, you'd get... Um, so I think I did like 14 days because something like that. And then I started – that happened a few times. I remember I wrote a body check from uh, – <laughs> I really want to say the business name. I won't, but from this guy and I'm in my own name um, and I got pinched for that. Um, and then I was locked up in Parramatta Prison on my 18th birthday on some pinch. I don't – mate, most, a lot of my time between 18 and 28 – I did a lot of remand for just a bunch of stupid shit. Mm. I did um, six months sentence, six months sentence, twelve months, twelve months, one eighteen month sentence, um, and a bunch of just remand. Mate, I was just constantly. I was that guy that would get out for a week and would be locked up again. I just couldn't fucking help myself. So you were just in there on dumb shit, and then when you got out within two seconds, you were just what back on drugs yeah, yeah. and and oh, doing dumb stuff. Of just course, to, straight back on yeah. it, like Eva. Yeah, oh, it was straight from jail to the drug dealer's house. And so you've you've got a, a son, right? Um, so at some point in this picture, you must have met your your son's mother. <laughs> yeah, Michelle, bless her. Yeah. So one thing, uh, a vivid memory comes up when you say that. Um, I remember her being pregnant, and me and her we were staying at my mum's house in the garage. I think. Um, so I'm twenty. Five, yeah, um, skinny as like heroin, full blown heroin addict, um, probably on the methadone, 
um, using amphetamines as well. Um, yeah, we was. Um, ice wasn't even around then. Um, and um, and I remember her being pregnant and I remember having this conversation and this is so sad really when you think about it with my mum and her saying that when the baby comes, we're going to stop using drugs. Just this fucking delusional mm. state. But I'm sure at the time, I guess we meant it, you know, mm. but let me tell you, that's almost impossible, I think, you know. I, I'm sure it has happened before, but... It's bullshit. I think a lot of people think that, right, in yeah, their head, yeah, that like there's, there's certain there's some certain milestone in my life that when that happens, yeah. that's it for me, no more drugs. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think I, I had the same kind of deluded milestones about that when I would stop selling drugs, you know, and then they they would have come by and I would have come up with another yeah. bullshit reason yeah. for why I needed more dream. money. You it's know? a fantasy, isn't it? Yeah. Okay? It's a fantasy that we feed ourselves to make ourselves feel a little bit better that one day our life's going to be manageable and in, in control, you know. Um, but, yeah, so he was born on the 27th of June 2001 um, and made the poor kid, thank God again for my mum. Mum always gets a shout-out and for Michelle's parents as well. But me and her were just fucking... You know, like, mate, there was one instance where I'm in a stolen car um, with the kid in the back um, in a child seat. I swear to God. Like, you know, That's responsible. Responsible parent. Yeah. Um, <laughs> in, uh, and then I demanded um, some money off my mum's side. So I had a bit of a stash of cash hanging in my mum's house at one stage there and um, um, I demanded some money. And I remember mum coming that day. Um, and meeting us in the car park and Macca's car park in Wetherill Park and just could you imagine what a grandma would feel like knowing she's handed over a couple of grand to her son who's going to go drugs. buy fucking cocaine and heroin and the kid in the back. Like that's fucked up, man. That is a putrid, putrid fucking sad fucked up moment. She must have just felt so helpless. Oh, like there's man. nothing she could do. It makes me want to cry right now, you know, when I hear when I say that. It's one of my, like, I didn't know it at the time and it's not until I got clean and I was, even with years up when I started reflecting back on that day, but that, just sharing that moment with you right now and even being in a high-speed police pursuit with the kid in the, in the, in the, in the fuck it, the back. <laughs> in um, the baby seat. Yeah, the baby seat. <laughs> um, fuck. But, yeah, man, there's some shameful moments. And, you know, that when I say I've got no regrets, of course, that's the shit I wish. But, sorry, to go back to my boy, um, he spent the first half of his life visiting me in jails and institutions, detox and jail, you know. Even my two little brothers, I've got two younger brothers, my dad's remarried to Anita, um, and they would visit me in jails. Like, what a shitty fucking life to grow up. But, mate, now they're my biggest advocates, you know. If my son bridges up about his dad all the time, he would have been sending out my news interview <laughs> last night to his mates and stuff, so... But when you have a loved one that's like that, I, I, it's hard to think that they're ever going to overcome it, right? At that point when they're yeah. just lost in addiction, I mean, be, and because the numbers just aren't usually in people, uh, aren't in your favour, right? No, they're really not, Andrew. My mum was interviewed by SBS one, one time and I remember, like, it's, it's out there, this video, and one of the things she said is she was just kind of, I would have been better off. She didn't say dead, but that's what she meant. He would have just been better off not being here is what she said, you know, because, like, 
And that's the misery a loved one would go through. And I often say this too, like loved ones are the true victims. Not me, it doesn't matter. Even at my lowest of low living homeless under the bridge in Woolloomooloo, hanging out, uh, hanging out for heroin, hungry, haven't had a fucking shower in five days. I was always going to get on. Oh, my mission was just to get on. But what about my mom, my dad, my sister, my brother? They're the true ones who are at home just in the fucking horrors. And I know that feeling now being in recovery because I've experienced that with loved ones. Um, and it's the most scary, um, powerless feeling any human being could ever feel, I think. Mm. I mean, of course, it's worse shit, but it's a fucking horrible, horrible, horrible thing, you know? Yeah, bless them. It's hard when you think back, um, when you have time to reflect on those things. Um, I mean, it takes courage to to have those hard conversations with yourself, right? I, yeah. I have like a lot of those kind of flashbacks to when I was just a useless cokehead when my, my parents needed help moving stuff and they're old and they had to get my older aunties and uncles and stuff to come over because I, the strong son was too useless sitting at home with his head in a mountain of coke. Um, just And it, there's just so many instances of that. I mean, <laughs> it was a running joke that I, I was never really expected to bring anything um, to Christmas because I, I couldn't be relied upon, you know. And, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and even worse... <clears throat> Every Christmas present I got, I'd sell it for drugs like, <laughs> as well. Like I'd swap it for drugs. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah see, more shameful memories. But uh, you never have that moment to sit and reflect on the reasons why it's good that you've clean, you've gotten clean and sober if you never get clean and sober, right? Because you, no one's sitting there high on heroin or any other drug and sitting there and having re- and reflecting on the times they've been a useless son, right? Uh, no. <laughs> I've, Mate, never been, I've never been on day three of a Coke banner and thought I'd better just explore in my head all the times I've been a useless friend, brother, son. No, I was a victim. It was all their fault. Like, just leave me alone. Like, how am I hurting you? This is the bullshit I used to say, and I think back to those things. And, like, I used to just say, how am I hurting you? This is to my family. Like, just leave me alone. Like, but you just don't comprehend at all what we're doing to them, you know? Mm. Mm. Yeah. You you don't get it while you're in it, do you? No, no, no. Shocking. But then that just kind of, while when you see the light of day, just reinforces why you've got to keep doing what you're doing now. You just reminded me of something, and like because I've worked with thousands of um, p- people, individuals in recovery and entering recovery, and there's a whole bunch of things. And this is just a message to anyone listening, loved ones, you know. Again, that you know, like it, like it took me honestly five years to really start to understand some of the impacts that my carnage of my addiction had had on my loved ones. So that meant five years of me being still so self-centered, self-obsessed, it's all about me. Like it took me that long. So what I guess what I'm trying to convey to those loved ones is that if you're, you know, your loved one who's just gotten clean and they're just, and they're still acting very selfish, like it really is a process. It was for me anyway. I can't talk for others. Um, And people want to get clean and they want to make amends, they want to fix shit. Well, you can't say sorry again. Like just because you got 30, 60, 90 days clean, you think, well, this is my experience again. Saying sorry is not the answer, mate. Show them by your actions. Change your life, you know. And it might take two, three years before anyone starts to trust you again. That's. I mean, that, it must be pretty cool now for the relationships you have with your your brothers and your son and your mom I, I, that you've shown them through action, right? Because you're right. There's no point after thirty, sixty, ninety days to be like it's going to be different this time, right? Yeah. 
But there is a point where at some stage they go, holy shit, and he means it. And even worse, like if you are saying sorry and then you're fucking relapsing and taking it back, like how damaging is that to the people, you know? And it just makes your words worthless. My words were worthless (laughs) for 17 years, (laughs) trust me, mate. And, yeah, for some reason this last time around, um, I didn't say sorry to anyone for for years. Like I knew it was was fucking – who was going to want to hear my sorries, you know? Mm. I just did not say it, and um, I remember actually. I, I think I was about four, maybe five years clean, and I sat down with my mum on her bed, and um, she was in a room, and I sat down on her bed, and I said, I, I actually took that moment. I was working the twelve steps of, um, and one of them was about making amends, and I actually I was up to that step, and I thought I need to say sorry, and I need to, um, to share with her that um. You know, like I'm sorry for the my actions, and yeah, it was like um, and I did it with my dad too. My dad, yeah, it's two two big stories, but anyway, um, yeah, it was really really hard actually, but a beautiful moment too. You know, something that I'll probably never forget. But and you said it at a point where the words had a bit more meaning than if you had yeah, said definitely. it after yeah. a few days, right? Yeah. Um, and I mean, how did she take it when you said yeah, that? Yeah, she cried. Um, she cried, and. <laughs> And said, you know, it's okay, you don't need to say sorry, which is a really, um, yeah, it's it's a common reaction. I think it doesn't necessarily mean it's true mm. from a lot of people. I think from my mum it was definitely true. Like she had peace for the first time in her life. It's a very mum thing to say, right, yeah. there's just such that unconditional love. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, you know, it must have also meant a lot for you to say it after waiting so long to really um, – Show your sorry through action first yeah, before yeah. the words followed. <laughs> I'll tell you about the one with my dad. I should tell you because this, <laughs> this one's pretty funny. Um, so my dad, I always call my dad Tony. I never called him dad. Um, ever since I was a little kid, he told me to call him Tony, and we'd never said I love you. In fact, I don't think I'd ever even said I love you to my sister. But my mum, I had said that. But um, and anyway, one of the things I noticed through making through working the steps, and that was that. My relationship with my dad was non-existent. It was all just almost like co-offender, you know. He'd, I'd steal the shit, he'd buy it, you know. Mm. But I thought he'd never said I love you and I'd never said it to him too and I just it felt like something special I could do, you know. I thought, see, and another thing is I worked out, I can't change my dad and it's not my job to try and change him. So I realised I just need to let him be exactly who he is but I took him to Thailand. I was a couple of years clean, maybe I was five or six years clean actually and – um. And I, my plan was to tell him that I loved him, which is fucking – it's the weirdest weird thing. I don't know where I came up with this <laughs> idea. It was just something – After never saying it your whole no, life, you but, thought, I've got to do this. Yeah, because it was something really, really important to me. It's like mm. for so many reasons, it was something really important to me. And um, it was my plan to – and I sort of I almost like role-played it, how it was going to work and everything. And anyway, I'm in Patea with my dad – Sitting on the beach drinking fucking coconut waters, probably getting a fucking foot massage as well. I wasn't, but I was just throwing that in. <laughs> and um, and I said to him, Tony, I said, I just want to let you know um, that I love you. And oh my fucking god, I practiced doing it in my head a million times, but it's just so it was so so hard. And he said to me, he said, he looked at me like funny, and he goes. <laughs> Danny, I like you too. You know that was his response, and <laughs> and it was perfect, man. I yeah. couldn't, I didn't need to hear anything from him. Um, 
but and it was also very true to Tony. Oh, know? yeah. It was so, yeah, <laughs> like, it was so Tony. I like you too. And I've shared that story before and people say, <laughs> people always defend him saying that was his, um, you know, he's, that's what he's grown up with. And it's true, whatever. I like you, I love you. It's all the same shit, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. that was his, ver- that that was his, his version, version yeah. of I love you. Right? Yeah, and, um, and funny enough, I'll share this too. Like he's he got really sick pretty recently too. And I've, um, now I've actually said it to him probably ten times now. And he even said it back now, like, but he's kind of not himself anymore. So he doesn't yeah. realize what he's saying, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, um, it's there that it's amazing how that became something important to me. Mm. Like, and it's just because I just want to live life to the fullest, man, you know, and for him and for me, you know. Has there been any more, any cool moments with your, your siblings now that like, obviously you've gone through this period where they would have probably been like, oh yeah, th- he's going to. He's going to relapse at some point, but then it gets long enough where you're like, "This is done for good. This is yeah. this is the new Danny." Yeah, it's been an incredible journey. Yeah, look, they I'm not that close with my siblings. Yep. None of them. I'm such. Um, I'm, I'm really still kind of look. I love who I am. I wouldn't change. Oh, hang on. What I'm trying to say is, I've worked out what I like, what I want, what I don't like, and what I don't want. Yeah. Um and. A bunch of things that I've worked out about myself after hanging out for a lot of people in recovery for mm. 13 years is I just don't connect well with on intimate levels with people. I just mm. I'm just not that good at it. I'm good at doing it in a public forum, kind of even like this right now. Yep. I can do this, but intimacy mm. is something I really, really um struggle with. And it's almost like I forgive myself and I just say, It's okay, Daddy. You don't have but to go back to my relationships with my siblings, I don't have that close relationships with actually with anybody, which is actually pretty sad as I said. There's no one I'm really close with, man. Do you weird. date? Have you got a partner? No, nah, I haven't. Bless the next partner that hooks <laughs> up with me too because she'll <laughs> encounter this shit. But um, I said yeah. this, right, from when I was five years clean, for my first, no, for my first eight years I had a bunch of partners and I thought I don't want a partner serious anything to settle down but I remember thinking fuck when I get to 10 years I'm going to settle down right well that was three and a half years ago ago. now and I think I'm ready yeah Andrew I think I'm ready to settle down but um as you probably know like you can't work on shit if you're not in shit you know and I'm so busy like at the moment I'm just so so busy and my life is so full and fulfilling um, that I kind of like a girlfriend, but I just don't want her to interfere. It, in my shit. You don't know where they would fit into your life. Yeah, <clears throat> uh, yeah. I mean, I, <laughs> I, I'm I'm in a similar stage, so I don't know what advice <laughs> to to give you. Where I I am so busy with all my other shit going on that I I, I don't have time for for dating. But I, at the same time, I'm so reluctant to do it because I kind of uh, caught. Um, I don't know, soured by my whole previous experience when I was engaged that it's kind oh, of, um, yeah, had some bad experience, you know, <laughs> yeah. So right. I, yeah, I, I, all I know is that like, um, it's pretty lonely existence if you never, if you never kind of, um, get there, but, um, I agree totally. I, yes. I mean, there must be a lot of, um, how old are you, Andrew? 36. Yeah, see, I'm 47. you still got fucking 12 years on me. <laughs> I mean, um, yeah, I need to um, put my ass in the gear very soon. I mean, yeah, you're a 
you're a good looking fella, right? And you- <laughs> yeah, he, was, he was really awkward. Today, I was just thinking that. And, and you've got this contagious kind of um, <laughs> happiness to yeah, you. Yeah, there there must be, uh, and you've got such a, a, a positive story. So there must be some um, some women out there that would love to date Bro, you, right? Let me tell you, it's crazy. Like, I've got so many women out of Sydney hitting on me, like, but no one in Sydney because, and thank God for them too, because, but. And I'm look when I say that I know that sounds a bit cocky, but it's probably just because of my social media stuff and all that. But but no, but it just seems like there's no one. They're all in fucking Melbourne or in Queensland. I had I had a uh, video. America. I had a video go viral on Instagram and TikTok, um, like oh, a few months ago, yeah. and I got all these DMs yeah. from women asking yeah. me to marry them, but they're all from like England and America. Oh, shit. <laughs> and I'm like scrolling through them, like any of these chicks, I was like, no. <laughs> so I can relate to that. Yeah. You're, you're popular and everywhere except your fucking yeah. hometown. <laughs> yeah, which I think is a blessing in disguise because do you know what, what's really important to me is I want to do shit right. I really do. So, I don't, like, I don't want, like, I'm, I'm 47. I don't want to be dragging any woman for any shit anyway, you know. Like, if, I hope, and you can't make it happen, but I hope the next partner I have does get the best of me and it works out because, you know, like, People get hurt. I don't ever, I don't want to hurt people, mm. you know. Hurting people's shit. Well, it's a lot easier to not hurt someone when you're uh, clean and sober, right? Yeah. Um yeah. I mean, would you say would you say that you're the best version of yourself that you've been? Yeah, bro. That's cool. 100%. Right? Hundred percent. It's just getting better, man. How good is that? Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It sells itself, right? Yes. yes, it is. It does. So Ladies, if you're listening to this, please <laughs> slip into da- Daddy's DMs uh, if you're from Sydney. From Sydney. Let's yeah. help him out. Uh, I wanted to hear about uh, your your great escape from Silverwater because sure. <laughs> sure, of uh, I, I've already had uh, one of Australia's most famous escape artists oh, wow, ever, John right. Killick, yeah. come on. Um, and he, he also escaped from Silverwater, but you went a different way to helicopter. Yeah. T- just tell me about like – First, how the ca- the idea came about, and then and then what went down. It's funny you say that because I was speaking to John about this. He read one of the stories, and the media plays out the story quite good. And and I remember John saying to me, "Oh, something like he was being really humble." He said something. <laughs> it was really he was being so humble. It was almost patronising coming from from John Killing that. <laughs> but it was something about like the greatest escape, you know. Yeah. And I thought, oh my god, are you serious? But I'm. Um, Bless him. Like, I know he was just trying to yeah. boost me up. C- compared to the guy who escaped uh, in a, a helicopter. helicopter. Yeah, wow. that's just wild. Yeah, man. Look, my my escape was quite daring. And, um, at, like, if I think back to myself, I was, I was 24. And like I said, I was quite agile back then. I weighed a lot, lot less. But I managed to scale a 24-foot um, barrel fence um, after a, an evening um, I was doing this course called Kairos, and I know a lot of people out there would know of it. It's like this Kairos retreats. Uh, uh, well, it never used to be called Kairos mm-hmm. retreats, but it was called Kairos. It was a religious program they used to run in yep. jail, where the chaplains and but one of the, and look, I want to just also say bless them. But I used to go there for the coffee and biscuits. You know, I yep. mean that's why I would turn up there and just to get out of the cell. And sure enough, um, we're in the visiting section, and I managed to at the end of the group. They're all holding hands, singing Kung Bayao or saying a prayer, and I ducked out the back, and um, 
scale this fence, man. There was this I'd done quite a bit of time in so that jail. A barrel fence was one with like the large, like yeah, at the um, top, like plastic, whatever the fuck it is, tube thing. Aluminium, yeah. But it's in, the thing is, those barrel fences are impossible to get up. But there was one spot in the jail that I'd been eyeing off for months where it's hard to explain visually, not seeing it, but a barrel fence met another barrel fence. So on one of those barrels, I had to lean the opposite side. So there was one bit where, oh, mate, I, I knew I could do it. Well, I had envisioned I could do it, and sure enough, I did. I got up there on that corner. Um, let me. I remember as I was taking that final stretch with my arm, if I had slipped, I would have been dead. Like I would because the the bars down below me, I would have just landed on that on my head and you mm. know, cracked myself. But anyway, I was up. I'm up on the barrel. What time? What time? It was eight thirty p.m. Yeah, about that. Mm. Um, I'm up on the barrel. I'm. My plan was to just sneak along the barrel fence because I'm still on the inside of the jail at the moment. I'm not out yet. I'm still on the inside. Of the jail, and I thought, did you escape on your own, or was there another? There guy, was another, another guy, guy too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I should give a shout out. <laughs> I never give a shout out to Paige because, um, just because I feel like it's out of school. But the only reason I'm going to mention him is he messages me every time and he says, "Why don't you fucking tell him I escaped with you too?" So <laughs> a shout out to my Coey. But um, yeah. So we're both up on the fence, yeah. and he's even more <laughs> agile than me. And anyway, we're going along the perimeter fence on the inside of the jail. The plan was just to sneak along that and sort of skip through the razor wire really slowly. Well, an officer, and I call him Mr. Singh because he had one of those big turbans around his head, he spotted us up there and I could imagine he must have just shit the gear. Like, And he's straight on the radio to the you know the MEU and the coppers and whoever else and we've just had to leg it. So we've sprinted or ran along this barrel through the razor wire. I've cut my legs up and I've taken this big leap off the top of that fence a 24-foot fence um, and landed on my arm, um, which was black and blue from my shoulder to my to my wrist and ran down Holker Street, had to bounce a couple of other fences. Pat's in front of me because he's quicker than me and I've got a fucking broken arm, but we've jumped a couple of other fences. By this time, the squad, the MEU, the dogs are on their way um, and we've jumped a couple of fences on Matt Parramatta River Bank at the bank's. And we've jumped in the water, start swimming across this river. Now, the coppers and the squad can't get to us because we've jumped all these fences. The dogs can't get over these fences. And and sure enough, we're swimming at pitch dark across this river and then I ended up in like these mud mangroves on the other side. Mm. By this time, water police is on the river and polares up in the in the sky, but they can't see me because I'm covered in mud from head to toe. It sounds like a scene out of the movie The yeah, Fugitive, but, right? Well, <laughs> funny you say that because there's a, there is a, a report in the paper where it says Inspector Ayres said it was like um, watching something out of a, an old movie or something. But, yeah, well, man. Yeah, yeah there's that Harrison Ford bit where he jumps off the bloody dam and in the yeah, movie The Fugitive right. yeah. and then there's helicopters going over and he hides in the riverbank, right? That's, that's what yeah. I'm picturing. The thing is I got away, man. I got away. Um, poor old mate. Old mate got pitched. So right at the end, once we finally come out of James Roos Drive, um, just so you know, like just so people understand, there was water police on the river and the helicopter, but they were all tracking Parramatta River looking for us. But I'd somehow by accident taken this little creek off the side called Duck Creek. I know that from the police report. And they couldn't find us, right? Um, and Pat was um, we're trying to steal a car together. I've got cash outside, as I mentioned earlier in the mm. podcast. Mum's got it. I've actually sent it to my partner. And um, he ended up 
stealing a car, ended up at his missus's house or some chick's house, and like two hours later, blind drunk with a gun to his head with the um, the police fucking arrested him. Fuck. They dobbed him in as soon as he was unconscious. Because could you imagine these poor women? They're thinking this, he's all over the news. Mm. We're on the news. Um, yeah, he's the most wanted man in the country yeah. right now. Yeah, but um, but you got away for longer. Yeah, got away. Yeah, I got away. I made it to Perth. Um, made it to Perth. Um, with my broken black arm, it was black and blue from my shoulder. I was using a whole lot of heroin uh, or home bake, they were calling in Perth. That's what they had these syringes you were buying for 50 bucks a pop. Mm. It was like this codeine bake of um, like home bake heroin. Um, yeah, and I got pinched and dragged out poolside from a hotel with my partner. Um, kind of got stomped on and um, dragged my ass back to Sydney, basically, mate. How'd they catch you? Uh, well, my partner was on methadone and mm. so was I. I couldn't get on the methadone, but I thought I thought New South Wales coppers wouldn't come looking for us. No, I thought warrants wouldn't carry in a state. This is my mentality. And actually it's true, but we didn't anticipate New South Wales detectives getting on a plane and coming to get us. So it's true. The warrants wouldn't carry to Perth, but New South Wales coppers could come get us, and that's exactly what happened. Yeah. She got in the clinic. They've tracked us down like within a day, and next thing you know, I'm getting dragged my ass out by the poolside <laughs> at 6 a.m. in the morning, um, <laughs> arrested and chucked in the Perth watch house. Well, short-lived. Yeah. But, um, yeah, bless. It was – um, and look, to be honest – um, I told a really short version of that story then, yep. and there's plenty of other pieces out there when I have told a longer story. But it's um, it is a pretty cool story. Like it, and man, <laughs> like I, I fucking did get away, man. And like I had every fucker looking for me, man, in Silverwater, like coppers, dog squad, MEU, which is the Metropolitan Enforcement Unit. They're the 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 crew that look after the security at the jail, and they couldn't catch me, mate. It's amazing what a bit of – I wanted to get on, bro. That's what – I had cash. I was going to ask. I wanted to get on. That that was the main motivation yeah. for why you had yeah. to escape. Fuck, yeah. that just shows you just how strong the draw was of your addiction then. <laughs> yeah, there is nothing more plotting, important than, yeah, the getting on, mate. started plotting a prison no, escape yeah. that you executed successfully. <laughs> and then you look back and you're like, well, it was worth it because you did get on for a few days. Wild shit. And so did sorry, did your um partner did she, did she get in trouble? She got she cop some shit as well? Yeah, look this <laughs> so she got done. So she got locked up as well. So yeah. for harboring, right? That's the charge. Yeah. Um man, look, there's so much more to this story. It could be take a while, but all right, I'll tell you a little bit more. So we so she's on the methadone, they dosed her. Um but I'm in the Perth watch out. Mate, I'm on 120 mils of methadone. The only thing that was holding me for the last six days is like 15 injections of fucking home bake. Mm. And so I've got a huge habit on that now. I've got a huge habit on methadone. And I'm sitting in the Perth watch house for three days, hanging out sick. She's getting dosed. She's also pregnant with my son, Josh. Um, and um, we got back to per- I mean, back to Sydney and they let us stay in the cells together that night. Weird. Hey, mm. Banksdown Coppers, shout out to Banksdown Coppers. Let me – I was fucked. She was fine. She's glowing from the dome. I'm fucking hanging out like a motherfucker. That's very but, nice um, of them. Yeah, that was <laughs> nice of them. But they knew Dad's fucked at the border and she got bail. So yeah. she got bail and I, I didn't, mate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they thought let him have his small victory for tonight. Yeah. Fuck. 
Yeah, mate, um, definitely had a coloured um, history, you know, but like and I often say, you know, and I'm, I'm actually not one to talk much about the mess, you know. Mm. Of course it's a big part of my story and the mess, the jail escape, um, the 17 years of the pain, hurt, misery is a big part of the, the hook that gets people involved into my story. But I, I, like my most passionate thing I love to share about is, you know, the gifts of recovery and how to how I've managed to do that stuff too, you know. so um, I, I think that that piece works so well because of the the mess, right? Yeah, because yeah, sure. um, people can see that they're like, oh, fuck, that, that sounds a lot like the mess that I'm in or the mess I've been yeah. in before, um, but I still haven't – I'm still living it. You know, I, I haven't quite gotten out of yeah. the mess of my life. Yeah. This guy's been in similar shoes to mine and he's done it, right? So that's why I think that those, the two pieces work hand in hand because sure. it's very hard – to take advice from someone who you'd feel like hasn't walked in your shoes or similar shoes mm-hmm. um, because you're like, well, this person doesn't understand my problems. But when you sit standing there and saying, mate, <laughs> I know, I've been there, yeah. then they go, oh, fuck, okay, then how did you do it? How did you beat it, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's why the value of your words have such weight. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it's funny because well, it's not funny, but I mean – like there's nothing someone can't tell me about the horrors of their addiction and how fucking trapped they are right now in the hundred <clears throat> attempts, how they just can't get two hours clean. I relate to that so much because exactly. I have done every single part of that. And not only that, I can almost promise you too that I know that there's a solution and you're this close. I think we're always, every single one of us is just like this close to changing your life forever, you know. Mm. And actually all that fucking this close is is just one decision Mm. and that's a different decision than you've been making for a lifetime. And people think that that decision is is impossible and I thought that, but then it happened, mate, you know. So um, I guess, yeah, that's just a little bit of a motivation just to let people know that, yeah, like you can do it 100%, you know. Don't believe this bullshit that you can't because you can when when did you change from um, obviously going back? You made the decision in when you were heading towards King's Cross to pick up gear. Instead, you got on a bus. You went back to rehab, and then um, what was the pathway to you starting to do the twelve step program? Yeah, so the, I was thrown in to the twelve step program um, at that point already. Like I was already doing a lot of twelve step fellowship stuff um, every day, um, but. And so, but it was painful. Like it was just, oh, fucking, here we go again. You know, this shit. Um, but I knew, <laughs> I knew that I needed to do something different. Mm. And I I believed, because I had lots of mentors as well, you know. I believed that, you know, this guy's doing it. Um, Why can't I? Yeah. yeah. Well, well, actually it was more like it's good for you, but that's probably not going to work for me. But I'll just hold on, you know. I heard this thing, you know, like, Smash it for 90 days, do all these suggested things, and if if it's still shit, you can leave and your misery can be refunded at the door, you know? And I liked that. I thought, okay. And then I got to that 90 days, and then I heard early recovery was five years, right? And I thought, and I know this is one big difference between me maybe and a lot of people is 
when I heard that, I thought, mad, that means I've still got five years before I have to be okay. But I think some people often look at that like, fuck, I have to wait five years before I'm okay. And for some reason, I just remember thinking, okay, I don't need to be okay for five years. And um, and then I'll just share this too. I was like 10 months. My first 10 months was miserable, man. It was, I mean, of course I laughed and I was making some friends and shit, but it was really, really difficult. And then I was living in a halfway house in Summerhill. I'm 10 months clean. I'm on my way home, 10 p.m. at night. I just got off the bus. I'm walking home down the street. I didn't get a driver's license for five years. I was suspended for 40 years, if you want to talk about that. But anyway, <laughs> I'm walking down the street um, and I looked up at the moon and um, this is when, like, this is, like, another huge spiritual awakening for me. Mm. This day, like, um, I just felt this connection. Like, I felt this level of gratitude I'd never had before. And I thought, fuck, I'm okay, you know. Like, it gave me hope for the future. And this it was like I was high on life for that moment. Did it feel like a message that you were on the right path? Yeah, definitely. Like uh, it's almost like it gave me a bit more courage and faith that I can keep doing this because I felt good normal without drugs. That's what it was. Like I had this natural high that I thought, fuck, this is nice. I like this, you know. And I've basically been chasing that same high for the last 13 years. Like I will literally, if I'm out at 10 p.m. in the street, I'll always look up at the moon and see if I can get that same feeling. And sometimes mm. I do, mm. often, very often. Sometimes I don't. Like you can't have the good without the bad either, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Mm, it is, man. It really is. I didn't realize that the 12 steps, you said that you was after five years of working the steps yeah. that you said sorry yeah. to your mom. I, oh, yeah. I, I didn't realize that they take. Like how long does it take to do all the steps? Does it change? Does it depend for everyone? Yeah, it does depend for everyone. Yeah, it does. I think I said four, four and a bit years. Um, but yeah, you're right. It took me quite a well. No, well, actually, to be honest, it took me um, probably three years to go through the entire first lot of twelve steps. Yeah. Um, I guess how willing was I to work that knife step we're making amends because the shame and guilt was really heavy for me, man. It's one thing that still, I'll share one thing. Sometimes I can go home to my family's house, right, and I know people relate to this and you probably won't even know this is happening and I get tired, right? This is what shame and guilt does. It makes the body, it has a physical um, reaction to the body that makes me tired and I did that for years I'd go home and I'd feel really tired and then I'd be on my way home and I'd wake up. And one day it struck me. I thought, it's the fucking, it's the shame and guilt that makes me tired. And once I realized that, it gave me a bit more power in dealing with it a bit more and understanding why I get tired. But I still win. I still go home to mum's and I want to have a lay down instantly. So, like, it still really affects me um, 13 years, four months later, mate. Do you think that by addressing some of that shame and guilt like it has kind of lightened that burden on you that you've felt felt yeah. like you've you could notice yourself get less tired as you addressed it yeah look it's it's really hard to explain like i know i sounded a bit um like i'm having progress with some of that stuff but mm. but actually i'm exactly where i want to be anyway yep. it's, it goes back to the thing it doesn't make a lot of sense but it goes back to that thing where i said to know what I like, what I want, what I don't want, and what I don't like. Like I'm exactly, and I like who I am. Yep. So I wouldn't change that. I like, I like that. I want to. I can't be 
perfect everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I was no, asking, you're no, doing great, mate. No, but it's true. It's just one of those <laughs> things I don't think will ever, will ever lift. I'm terrible and um, I tell you what, I'm terrible at doing family commitments too. I'll do it. Or you can count on me 100% to be there, but I'll probably be there for like 45 minutes. My whole family knows don't expect Daddy to stick around for too long. He'll <laughs> always be there, but I just get awkward and time. Yeah, so I just I've worked out you gotta my know your, best self. Yeah, you, know? you got to know your limits, right? Yeah, limits. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I would find it hard if I was to ever try and do the twelve steps. Like the making a men's piece. I I have a mental block about people that I've wronged that have also wronged me because I think in my head, like, fuck, fuck that person. Yeah, sure. I can't. That's really interesting <laughs> that you say that. Do you know, yeah, that's a real, um, that's a real, what do you call it, um, um, obstacle for a lot of people. Mm. You know? I don't have that for some reason. I'm sure I did for years. Today, it's like this, right? And I know this is going to sound crazy too, but... Right, first of all, each little resentment like that or um, it's just like putting a stone in my pocket and I believe the more I have, it weighs me down. And I truly get that, you know. Yep. And secondly, I go by this thing that you can't hurt me, you know. Like they can't hurt me. Only I can hurt me. I'm responsible for how your shit makes me feel and by the way I react to it. So I just really, I just don't have time for the shit, man. I just don't. Sometimes yeah. I'll go into some resentment. Like I've got one at the moment. But at the same in the same conversation I'm going, Danny, fucking let it go. Yeah. Like in the same conversation, I'm bagging him and I'm going, just let it go, Danny. You know, it's <laughs> weird. Yeah. I know from doing uh the I did the AOD pr- program with Odyssey House when uh, I got out. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that was part of my bail conditions, I think. Yeah, and right. um I, I noticed when we were talking about triggers, like I, I'm far more susceptible to positive triggers than negative, right? They're, yeah. they're the ones that get me because I always love to be the life of the party. So any any good thing that happens, first thing I want to do is like, let's get on it. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, I found like the first time I did stand-up comedy in front of like a proper audience, not just like an open mic, in front of like 80 people and I did really well, I got such a buzz off it. I was like, fuck, man, this feels – I felt like I was on cocaine. I was like – straight away I was like, fuck, I'd love to get some. But then I had, I had to get home for my curfew and I was like, I'm lucky that I had to race home because otherwise I, I could have been in a bit of a dangerous spot there. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for sharing but, that. I get that. Um, I get high on – um. I feel like I've had a go at comedy somewhere. I, I used to go to the comedy club often with my mates in my early days of recovery but – um, but I get that. But one thing I've been really blessed to be, I've done a, a few talks in crowds that I'm um, literally, bro, I'm up there, my legs are shaking, mm. but I'm just so alive. Like I just feel so incredible. And um, and just on that too, like people say don't get nervous and, and I just don't think about it. I just do not, I just do not think about it until I just have to do it. Yeah. And that's how I deal with everything these days. But if it's if you're getting asked to talk about stuff that you talk about all the time, yeah, right? Yeah. I mean, TikTok, you know, is probably a good practice for yeah, that. You just yeah. do talking nonstop. Yeah, I think so. And if it's also something which you you believe and you're passionate about, then um, you know, I think that can help you to try and override the the nerves of like, it's hey, not, I'm standing in front of an audience. Yeah, it's not. Yeah, you're right. It's. I mean, it is two different things, but completely like being at home in front of a phone. 
talking. Um, oh, totally. Yeah, it's, it's, you don't get the nerves. No, nah, right, you don't get people, the nerves. But, but, yeah. you, but you've got you'd have this muscle memory. Hundred percent. Yeah, talking. you're right. Yes, you're right. Hundred percent. Just a big difference is those those nerves. Like, and the big difference is the reward as well. Like, it's great at home and takes health for sure. But when I'm out in front of fifty people or more mm. and sharing, and my legs are shaking, um, that's gold. Like, that's just. The best rush, absolutely, and then you have people coming up to you afterwards. Yeah, that's playing. So you worked uh, at Glebe House for how long? Ten years. Ten, ten years. And what made you want to get into that line of work? Um, yeah, man. Well, so my first job in recovery <laughs> is I laughed because I was a I was a barman. The first job in recovery. Now, <laughs> my sponsor, my mentors, who call them whatever you will, said you're not supposed to do that, right? But this is me, a bit of a rebel, you know. And not just that, the job fell into my lap mm. where I could just start doing one day a week and I became a barman, right? So, But you're uh, surrounded by alcohol while you're doing recovery. Yeah, 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 I was. But, and again, this is, like, I don't want to give anyone else permission to say this, but I would just... All my use was never alcohol. I drank, of course. I got smashed on my 18th and all that stuff, but I never um, – alcohol was never a problem. Mm. I'm an alcoholic, but I believe I am too. Like I can't – I haven't had a drink or a drug for 13 years, four months and one day, right? So mm. anything mind or mood altering to me is a relapse and I would I hope to fucking God I knock on wood that I never touch it, but – um, yeah, I wasn't interested, you know. In fact, I used to give people extra drinks. It's like I'd live vicariously for them or I wouldn't charge them for, oh, my God, my employer's probably listening. <laughs> but anyway, um, but anyway, and then I went from one day a week to two days a week to three days a week mm. to seven days a week. And I was working long hours and I thought, fuck this, man. Like I was, it was a cool job. I loved it. I was traveling all around Australia. I was working at sporting events. Um, monster motocross, V8 supercars, tennis. Like I had this maddest job, but my legs were killer bit. I thought, you know what? I'm going to start studying. And for the first couple of years, I didn't want to help anyone anyway. Like I was too worried about myself, you know. Mm. And anyway, I started studying and the job landed. What were you studying? Um, community services certificate for. Yep. Um, and as I started doing that certificate, um, the boss of that rehab that I went through, who also told me you'll never work here because I was such a fucking shifty bloke <laughs> in the early days of recovery. So when I started studying, she said to me, Danny, she said, you'll never work here. And I thought, it was a bit disappointing. Well, anyway, um, she called me up. Was, um, what were you doing that was shifty? Oh, was just... man. I was just ducking and weaving. Like if, uh, My early days of recovery, I was just under the radar with everything. I hated people. I was petrified of people. Mm. I would do everything, but I'd slip out real quick from everything. It's 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 hard to explain, but I would sort of be a part of everything, but I would never hang around. Yeah. And um just do the bare minimum. There was other stuff too. Yeah. I was I was yeah, I was just a rat bag in my early days. <laughs> I had girlfriends. I was doing everything they said I was working at a bar, you know, I was doing everything that they said you shouldn't do, but um, I was also doing everything they said you should do. Yeah. It's a funny combination. Everything wrong I did, I thought I need to do two right things. Yeah. And that's what kept me alive. And anyway, she, um, I did my first shift on my third year birthday, um, my third year sobriety birthday. Um, I did my first overnight shift at that place and then 
Um, and and then and then I stayed there for the next ten years. I went on to study. I did a diploma, and I went to uni too. I got kicked out of school in year eight as well. So, um, just as a shout out to the people who know, like I, I'm certainly not, I'm educated. Like definitely, street smarts are magic. Yeah, and I could read and write. Okay, I acknowledge that. But mate, I had no fuck. I had no study in me. You know, no. and you still got it done. Yeah, mate. Just like possessions, nine tenths of the law, you just turn up nine tenths of the time. You can't fail. I reckon that's my little recipe. Why? I saw you post on social media recently about that you lost that job. So. Yeah, all right. So on that, I um, I know you mentioned the name of that place a couple of times. I'm just, like it's cool. I'm not, I'm not even going to mention the name yeah. of that place, right? But um, yeah, I lost my job, and oh yeah, sure, let's talk about it. So um. <laughs> Uh, about a year and a half ago, maybe I um I was at Parkley Prison picking up someone, and I I made some content for TikTok that went viral, and um it was a little bit inappropriate, and because of that, um and look, like I said, I'm not a saint, you know, um but because of that, I got a warning, and then um twelve months later, on my forty seventh birthday, the twenty second organ. August, I, I got the I got the sack, um, which they led it to look like I, I resigned and. Um, but it was again for another social media post. Yeah, it was for another social and media post. They told me to stop doing social. They fucking told me what to do. You tell me what to do. I'm going to keep doing it. And in that twelve months, I kept doing it. I um, think that's also missing they the got point. Me on a technicality. Uh, yeah, I mean, it just it seems so disappointing when uh, you've built this following right of all these people because of all the positive shit you're putting out into the universe, right? Yeah, thanks, Andrew. You're right. I literally, listen to this, I literally got the sack because basically I think it was said like, well, I was, I won't go into details, but because of a negative thing I'm doing yet, I'm getting, I've got 120,000 followers, hundreds and hundreds of them messaging me saying how much I'm helping people. So I guess it's a little bit of an ob- um, an illusion to me. It feels like I'm really doing really good stuff, which led me to keep pushing to do that stuff. But then I lost my job over it as well. When you seem to be almost like a a, a champion of people recovering from addiction, right? Yeah, yeah. You're yeah. Thanks, because <laughs> I definitely don't want to accept that. Um, <laughs> like I'm just. I want to say this. Let me say this. Like I've got. I know hundreds and hundreds of people who are living the fucking dream just like me um, and killing it and got so much time up as well. I just found a voice somehow in amongst this, well, it's my business encapsulated, which I guess we would need to talk to. But through my business, I started sharing my stories of recovery and somehow um, I've had a lot of practice the last five years sharing those stories that I've built this um, network and this connection with the world, actually, um, with my stories about the social and emotional impacts of addiction. It must have been a tough blow, though, to learn that you were losing your job. Bro, well, listen to this. It felt like I lost a limb, like it was shattering. Mm. Ten years. Um, and honestly, I've dedicated my life to that place. And not only that, I owe my life to that place. And I always have beautiful things to say about that place. But it felt like I lost a limb. And then guess what? Not even three days later, I'm getting paid to go to Thailand business class to on a on a on a work gig that I've 
So it was like God just goes, yeah, Dad, fucking have this. I'm on business class flight to Thailand um, to do some work over in Thailand. And, mate, that was just like a little sign from the universe just saying, you know, it's, it's going to be all right, Danny. It sounds like they just – they screwed you on some like uh, red tape bureaucratic yeah, 100%, technicality. Totally, that's exactly what it was. It was, and which, you know which what? Which doesn't take into context the full view of like all. It's like uh, if we're weighing up the positive versus the negative, what two um, mild, question mark mildly inappropriate posts versus a million fucking positive ones? Yeah. It seems. Yeah, <laughs> fucking mate, it's it's bullshit. But you know what, like, and going back to that thing about the resentment thing, like I don't want to hold on to shit because here's the thing, there's so much good that's come from it too. Yeah. And, and yeah, you can you can always flip anything into a positive, but I choose to see so many positives and actually, Andrew, right now today I'm living my dream way more than I was back then. I was living the dream there for a long time. I fucking love that job so much. How long ago did you lose it? Was um, it on the 22nd of August last year. So yeah, okay. So not even that long ago. October, November, December, January. Was that five, five months? months ago. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, even though I was living the dream there 100%, like now it's even – I haven't been, I haven't been to work for six months because previous to that I was in America for eight weeks as well. So – and I took long service leave. So how are you making a living? Is you getting hired as a speaker? What's now? going on? Yeah. What's, yeah, what, what, the moment, what's the work? I've got my fingers in 47 pies, bro. None <laughs> of those pies are big yet. <laughs> but um, a bunch of small pies, right? Yeah, a bunch of small pies. I literally make income from so many sources. Um, I have had a few motivational speaking gigs. Mm-hmm. Um, I've recently been down to Canberra to, um, to uh, present at a jail. Um there's only one jail in Canberra, so I'm really being too <laughs> about that. Yeah. And some rehab services. Um, I've done some online speaking gigs, so I make a little bit of money from that. I get paid a little bit crazy by social media. They literally pay me for the content I'm putting out. For some reason, they put ads or something in my in my content, and they I make an income from that. Is that on Facebook or where? Yeah, Facebook yeah. and and TikTok as well. We make cool. a bit of money for doing that. Um, I also am running. I started up a Patreon page where I started doing online groups, um, which, fuck, I got about 60 subscribers to that. Oh, that's cool. So I run two groups fortnightly a month um, where people can come and get involved, break some of their isolation. So through all my social media stuff, I realized that there's all these people that want to talk to me. Well, why not come online with me and we'll talk. We can actually talk back and forward what do you, like that. What, what do those sessions look like on Patreon? What, what, what do you guys talk about? Um, mate, I do a, a range of different groups, but um, I often steer them in gratitude, mm. acts of kindness, acceptance, commitment, therapy, um, community um, service, doing service for other people. I just – I pick topics that I'm really good at yep. and I can make people feel good. And I'm really all I'm doing – it's just guiding people for an hour um, and giving them a safe place to come and talk. And on top of that, Encapsulator um, is is a big part of that as well. So as I move forward, I'm going to give these individuals an opportunity to record video messages to their future self. And by visiting our groups each fortnight, we'll be able to keep updating those time capsules as they progress towards Yeah, so goal. tell us about Encapsulator. So how did that idea come about? How did that all begin? I was I was six years clean. Let's say it was my milestone birthday. I don't think it was, but yeah, it was. Um and I've I've turned up at work 
and I'm, I'm full of gratitude. I'm I'm flying, you know, I'm on top of the world. I'm I'm celebrating six years clean. I thought to myself, I wonder what I was like when I entered those doors there, you know, what was I thinking? How was I feeling? And I came up with this idea that what if I recorded a video message to myself for my 10-year birthday, which was very ambitious at the time because, you know, they say recovery is like a daily program, you know, and here I am thinking about recording Planning a video ahead. to my 10-year birthday. But yep. then I did a little bit of research on some of the old-school time capsules, maybe some questions I could answer. I started the camera rolling, and, man, I had this piece of paper in front of me and I started talking to that camera and it was the weirdest, oddest, beautiful therapeutic process I'd ever done. It was so weird. This was me talking to my future self on camera. I started talking about some stuff I'd never spoken about before. For example, I thought about my mum and my son and my dad in four years' time and the first thing I thought was I hope they're okay and I hope my relationship with my son is better and I also thought, fuck, I hope I'm okay as well. Mm. I'm so... I found myself expressing myself without any fear of judgment and I thought this would be an amazing tool to give to the participants coming through that rehab. I documented about 300 videos over the next few years. I did another trip to America back in 2017 where I met all these entrepreneurs. Like in America, man, they got no government funding like we have here. I've yeah. fucking milked the system for 17 years, going <laughs> to rehabs, refuges and all that. Well, over there you get jack shit, I yeah. think. And what I discovered is there's all these entrepreneurs and they gave me the inspiration to come home and start and develop my time capsule concept into Encapsulator. So I'm the founder of Encapsulator. We provide time capsule video programs allowing individuals like you and I to record messages of love and hope to your future self, identify your hopes, your dreams, your fears, your future aspirations on camera and this gets locked away into our secure time lock vault to be discovered at a date that you choose in the future. Sorry, that was the pitch. Um, <laughs> I've got heaps more pitches. But what happens is questions pop up on screen yep. um, which will help guide the users to create their best video possible. How long was your original uh, video that when you were talking about the first time you did this? I think it was 12 minutes. Yeah, cool. And then you opened that uh, ten year, five years uh, later. Yeah, I did. Yeah. And – um. Look, that interview last night on Channel 10, they used some of the footage from that original time capsule. It's gold, bro. It seems like it must have been a pretty emotional moment to watch your own video back after five years. Think about what did it, it like, feel like? There's so many things. Like, Look, what we do with Encapsulate is we literally promote and encourage you to capture a moment in time, a precious moment in time that would never have existed if it wasn't for this platform. So – like you might have social media, for example, and you record this and that. And we always put on some kind of front, but what this was was me capturing the essence of who I was right then. I'm talking about my feelings, talking about my loved ones. And to watch that video, you just give me mad goosebumps. And just to think like all the things I spoke about in that video, I'd achieved them. Crazy thing is my five-year-old daughter didn't even exist then. No. Um I think I spoke about wanting to buy a house. I fucking bought a house. Um, oh, man, it just goes on and on. I even said I hope I've got a mad Volkswagen um, and I spoke about what model it is and I was currently driving and I still am the, the best model of that Volkswagen. So, man, and it was like – did it spin you out? It's like you're literally – you oh, have made, made your dreams – your, your dreams had come true, right? It did. You'd, 
And let's acknowledge that I'm, I'm very lucky to have all those things. Again, it's all been hard work. I've worked mm. my fucking ass off. But some people might have relapsed and completely fallen off the wagon. Well, um, I've also had experience of people watching their videos back a year later, two years later, um, who have said that's motivated them to get their ass back into gear too because they've seen that that precious moment in time and forgot what it was like to be there, you know. Um, and now we're working with other organisations. The time capsule concept can be used, you know, in so many different applications for the corporate industry, high schools, maybe a mum wanting to send a message to their unborn grandchild in the future. The application's unlimited. Do you think that that adds like an extra level of self-accountability because you've made this video, right, where it's just like this is where I'd like to be in five years, right, and then you're going to watch it in five years and you better (laughs) – you're thinking, well, I better not let my past self down. I've got to get cracking on this shit. So true. It's almost like a promise you're making to the future. I know for a fact that so many of the guys that have done my toy capsule platform said, oh, they want to see the video early. Like, no, you can't. It's fucking buried in the ground. But when we verbalize our goals out loud, it's very beneficial. It helps us to remain accountable and motivated. And it's almost like you're making this promise to your future self. Knowing that video is going to be delivered to your inbox in three, six, 12 months' time or a year, two years' time, just adds that extra level of accountability, as you mentioned, to achieve your goals. What do you think is a good time to set for a time capsule? Because I, I would on think your journey, right? Depending yeah. what your personal development journey is, if it's a business journey, yeah. um, I reckon five years. We always hear like five years, you know. Well, I have certainly heard that along business. I reckon with recovery, maybe even six months. If you're fucked, mm. if you're on the bones of your ass, hanging out. Um, and just entering recovery, even four weeks is incredible change. Yeah. 60 days, incredible change. Six months is incredible change. Yeah. Um, different um, different amounts of time. Or maybe you just don't even lock it. You have the option not even to lock them and you can keep revisiting those videos as you progress. It's crazy how valuable it is to be able to look back. Um, and something that I've only started doing recently – I keep like an Excel spreadsheet of every single comedy gig that I do and just like I write like a couple of – like, I write like one sentence about how the show went yeah. and uh, in two weeks is the one-year anniversary of the first time I ever got on stage at an open mic comedy night and I'm going to be performing at the comedy store at the entertainment quarter, right, which is like the biggest comedy venue That's in the country. That's where I go. That's the place you know? I go to, yes. So it still spins me out to think that um, – you know, one year ago, I had to bring my own mum to my comedy gig because not because <laughs> an audience. No, because I, I wasn't allowed. Out, oh. I, my bail conditions yeah. <laughs> were that I had I couldn't leave the house. Uh, yeah, I, I couldn't well. leave the house unless I was in the company of my mum or dad. Bless. So one year ago, I couldn't. I had to go to an open mic comedy show in Lewisham with my mum, and then twelve months later, I'm um, going to be doing it at the comedy yeah. store. Yeah. And so, I, congratulations! But thank you, man. That's but. Awesome. It still spins me out that that's like a whole, that's just one year, right? And that was, I was still on bail. I thought I was going back to prison. I just recently got out of prison. Uh, It just shows you how much life can change in 12 months if you, if you work at it. Yeah. 
And again, like, yeah, with a bit of hard work, I always say dream big too. Um, try not to let our fear stop us because fear stopped me from so much, you know. Today I don't let – be brave, you know, like we can do anything. Mate. Couldn't agree more. I, that was like one of the reasons why I – Decided to do comedy yeah, was because I was so I was such a pussy I was so afraid to yeah, do it, well. but then when I was sitting there locked up and I, for me I felt like I was the end of my life and I thought well if this was the end of the story what do I regret not doing, and um yeah so I I realised that this this life's too short to not try and do the things that you really want to do and if if you're sitting there resisting them because you're afraid um. You're just letting yourself down. That's such a good point too. And like I really think this is like one of the biggest things in life or lessons in life. There's that movie, I think it's called um, My Family Bought a Zoo. I think that's one. But there's this 20 seconds of extreme courage. There's this line they talk about, 20 seconds of extreme courage. And I think that moment this chick's walking past the window and he wants to ask her out and he ends up going something like that and he asks her out. But he talks about just that having that 20 seconds of extreme courage that if you don't take that opportunity, you may never know what could have happened. Like I love that concept, you know. Yeah. If we can practice that in everything we do, like um, who you don't want to miss out. Yeah. It's magic what can happen when we be brave, man. Sitting there wondering as you get older, what if is much more – Terrifying, I think, than the fear of whatever you wanted to do in the first place. Uh, I mean, that's why I mean, I, I get to sit here and chat to uh, awesome people every week, and this is a crazy kind of privilege itself. Um, you know, I love chatting to people about um, their wild stories and and how they kind of went through shit and and, and found their their calling and and found a way to find happiness. And none of this, weirdly, like comedy, podcast, none of this would have happened if I didn't get <laughs> locked up. That's yeah. Well, it, there you go. Isn't it weird how life yeah. happens? Yeah, I love what you're doing. And um, I was saying to you earlier that I'd love, I'd love to do this too because I guess through all my – one thing I'm really gifted with is I meet the most incredible people online mm. and I've got a whole range of um, people that I could interview and I love – Hearing stories too, so I'd love to be. You should definitely start a podcast. Yeah, I want to. Again, I'm starting next week. I've done how I'm going to do it exactly, but I've got a little bit of software at home. I'm just going to start doing it online. I'm going to get TikTok Gary a number one, and then we're going to kick it off. And I think, you know, our colourful past, and um, and I know my ability to connect. The reason I was so successful in the work I did in drug and alcohol is. Well, I was working with high-risk offenders coming directly from prison, never any sexual offences of any kind. So when I say talk about high-risk offenders, I'm talking about fucking murderers, armed robbers, the most hectic of criminal and men or something about, I don't know what I've learned is I've, and probably my lived experience, I'm always able to connect with every single one of them in some way, shape or form, which I think would be a great asset in doing podcasting too, so I can't wait to start, mate. Where do you think that's come from, what, what, the, your ability to connect have, with these guys? Oh, I think, look, I think it come from definitely being homeless, being a mad scammer. Like when I say scammer, like I've got a manipulator. Like mm. I've always I've always got my – I still continue to get my own way. I've never not got my own way. <laughs> I've got it like – and I don't want to be cocky again, but I always get – 
what I want, even if it's not what I wanted. It's like so it's a combination of <laughs> of drive and then acceptance as well. It's like, but yeah, I always get what I want. Well, I mean, <laughs> that makes you bulletproof, right? If you say, uh, yeah, uh, that would be I, I get what I want, or if I don't get what I want, it's because I changed my mind about what I wanted. Yeah, <laughs> almost. But like, even on that, like, you should see some of the beautiful girls that I've had. Chicks that, like, uh, I mean, I'd, it's true. Somehow, it's like the universe always provides, you know? Well, you're overdue for another one. Oh, so. yeah, babe. <laughs> I am. <laughs> but yeah, I sometimes. I just think, how did this happen, you know? Well, send some positive thoughts <laughs> to the universe for yeah, for the next the next Mrs. <laughs> for Mrs. Shannon to come into your life, mate. Yeah, yeah, definitely. She's covered. <laughs> um, cool. Well, I think we've um, we've gone on a journey there. I think yeah, we've man. covered off a fair bit. It's it's great. Look, if I I'll do, I guess if we're wrapping it up, I'll just say that my life is absolutely incredible. Mm. Today and I wouldn't like everything I've been through and everything I'm doing and all the hard times in recovery because recovery's been really difficult too. I know I talk it up to sound so incredibly glorious, is that the word? Um, but there's been a lot of really hard times too. I want to, you know, give a couple of shout outs to all the addicts, the people that I've known that are dead now due to heroin overdose, yep. a couple of suicide. Um, alcohol-related deaths, but, mate, th- it's countless amount of um, guys and a couple of women that have died from heroin overdose in my time. How many overdoses like, did you have? Oh, man, oh, yeah. I've, I had about 15 overdoses. Fuck. I used to get broken ribs from this um, paramedics giving me CPR. Fucking hell. Like, and I remember that memory, nursing those broken ribs around for months, and I think back to it now, and it's like, it's like I can touch my ribs right now and feel like almost death. Like I was dead, you know, blue and getting paramedics giving me CPR to revive me and then coming to and being pissed off with the paramedics for ruining my stone because they've given me Narcan which straightened you up again. Even though they just saved your life, yeah. right? Yeah, sick twist. Yeah. Addiction's a fucking twisted, sick mental disease, you know. Mm. It really is. It's a, it's a, It's a... Um, so anyway, yeah, big shout out to, you know, all those, um, people that have fallen you know, and lost their lives and that's, oh, I could have been one of them. I can be one of them. You know, they've just been so unlucky that for whatever reason I got found, um, when I'd overdosed and they didn't, um, also, you know, the thousands of people that I know uh, who are in recovery, living the dream and living their best life, um, just like I am, but. I guess the only difference with me is I've had a bit of, I started sharing my stories about addiction because of my business encapsulator and then I found a bit of a voice out here in the community. But there's so many people out there who, are, you know, live in the dream as well. Um, so big shout out to them. What do those well, low points look like in recovery when you're saying that there, there are certainly times that where you were, you were struggling with it? What did it feel like? Yeah, well, like crying, um, crying, um, Sad. Oh, man, I can't help but put a positive spirit on everything. Mm. I don't know what's wrong with <laughs> but, but, like, I even think even through those times, like, that's what made me who I am today. Like, that's the shit. Like, from pain comes gross. We've heard mm. that, but it's so true. Like, the more pain I'm in, the fucking 
greater I'm going to be. And I also think, like, I can't have everything good. I love a, I love a shit day. It's like, and sometimes I just think, and sometimes they go into two and three days. Not often these days, but um, physical exercise is, is the best counteraction to all of that every single time to yeah. get to the fucking gym and smash it. Because if I'm under a bar lifting 140 kilos, which I can do at the moment, all I'm thinking about is lifting that fucking bar, otherwise I'm going to be crushed. So, yeah, it um, simplifies things. Yeah, a bit, it's such it? a beautiful way to sort of get in the moment and, um, and get the natural endorphins going to sort of bring me back. But, yes, uh, my mental health, I've got to say, is quite good compared to a lot of the people I know. I don't know if it's because all the exercise and all the counteraction stuff that I do that I've been able to maintain my mental health. Yep. But, yeah, like I do know a lot of people really, really struggle and I don't want to say that that's an excuse to, to give up because I still think I've seen people absolutely fuck going through extreme paranoia, um, schizophrenia, and still recover. Mm. You know, I've seen them come out of it. Um, so, I, yeah, I don't want to take away people's pain and mental health because I know I can't understand what they're going through, but I also don't want to give them permission to give up either because that's, yeah, that's not the answer. I mean, all those stories, like uh, similar stories to yours, where they're so valuable for people to hear, right? Those, those stories of someone with uh, the odds against them, and they've and they've got through the struggles and and they've overcome. Um, I think that's why uh, it's so so good to have things like social media, or, and I think it would be great for you to have a podcast because. Those stories can um, give people hope, um, loved ones of yeah, addicts and definitely. then also addicts, right? Yeah, for sure. Look, this is my space definitely. Like social media and doing the work I am doing is actually, it's me to, it suits me to a T. I get every, my cup is so full. I get my connection the way I like it. So um, like I don't have to be deep, intimate, one-on-one stuff with people because I don't like that. I'm yep. just no good at People say, can I do a one-on-one session with you? They'll pay me this. No, I won't do it. It makes me sick, that stuff, actually. Mm. It's that It's that extreme. I, I'm so sensitive. I will take on your trauma and it'll hurt me. I've got a beautiful five-year-old daughter who anything you tell me about your childhood it makes me relate straight to her. Yeah, fine. Um, but anyway, I've just got this perfect formula for life at the moment. Good. So, so yeah, a podcast would only increase that, I reckon. I mean, I can't help at night by scrolling through TikTok and see your fucking head at some stage. <laughs> yeah, no, no. I'm every, I think I piss a lot of people off actually with that too. But I just think people like the haters, let's just touch on the haters for a sec. You know, like I say the haters, people get quite pissed off at me or annoyed and I hear. Why? I don't know, bro. I don't get it. I get, I've copped a lot of um, negativity from doing the stuff I do actually. Um, tell me why. I don't completely understand why, but I think, I think, I don't know actually. But what they what are they, what's the kind of stuff, what do they say? No one cares about your fucking story, mate. Yeah, there's that, no, it's it's not that so much. It's, it's people that are involved in my, um, like some of my people that I kind of thought were mates, Mm. um, who are just, um. I think they don't like me being so – see, and it's true, right? Through my recovery and the 12-step fellowship, it's quite – you know, it's it's quite a bit of a close-knit 
community thing. And then I started talking about my recovery stories on fucking television. Mm. Um, and it's like I think people feel a little bit, um, um, what's that word, um, betrayed Betra- yeah. somehow. Why? Because I don't know, man. Because you're sharing it. your your stories that they're used to hearing in a private setting, yeah, more in a, yeah, in a public yeah. forum. I mean, who cares? As long as you're not sharing their their private stories, then who would. gives a fuck, right? I never would. But I do start um, documenting other people's stories, but with their permission, of course. Totally. And because what I think a lot of people don't realize is there's another millions of people out there who have never heard that somebody can recover, and they're the ones who I'm touching, and they're the ones I'm going to keep. Reaching for, you know? Yep. Yeah, so fuck the haters anyway. I, I had similar guys message on TikTok because I, I started posting like uh, content about my time in jail, right, or like my prison yeah, food yeah, reviews yeah, because yeah, I thought yeah. that was funny. I, yeah. I reviewed all my meals when I was yeah. in prison and guy, and there'd be guys going like, Can't, you're only in prison for four months. And I was like, yeah, but it was enough for me to like to lose my home, my fiance, my dogs, my, my business, like, um, you know, I lost all my stuff. Like I, and it was enough to change my life. So, I mean, how long, how long do you need to do to, to like have your life change and talk about it? Right. Look, look, anyway, it's the human race, right? We're always, there's always going to be judgmental people for whatever reason. Yeah. As long as we're happy. It really, it really is that simple. You know, if you're not hurting someone and if you're doing what you love, why wouldn't you keep doing it? Yep. Yeah, I mean, fortunately, what, what, that guy. I think a lot of people um, come from just places of their own pain when they like haters online. Definitely, but if you try mate. and communicate them, usually they back down. Like, mate, that- so true. I get a lot of trolls coming mm. on TikTok, mm. and uh, my mods always want to block them. I go, no, just let him go for a little bit. Yeah. I like to convert the trolls. I call, it. and I have. I've converted heaps of trolls because if you show, if someone bags you, and you go. Mate, I'm sorry that you felt like that. Are you okay? Sometimes I'll come back and go. You know what? Sorry, that was just out of anger. And then they become fucking team members. Exactly right. They become followers and then maybe yeah. even advocates, yes, right? Yes, So Yeah, so fucking yeah, yeah. just share love, mate. Um, and, yeah, and if that, yeah, it's all good. It's all good, bro. <laughs> yeah, I post these stupid prison food reviews of yeah. my, like, my meals of, like, 125 days in jail. I can see that it take off, yeah. And, um, then, I mean, it's gotten some news coverage and people have, like, messaged me and said, this brought, brings me closer to my loved one who's in jail, right, just knowing there what the go. food's like. Yeah. So people have gotten v- value out of it, but, uh, yeah, then other people have just said, what, what's the point of these? I don't get it. So, well, you, yeah. if you don't like it, I'm not making you watch them, you know. Yeah, I don't understand. You're right. That's exactly right. So it's people that have been there. Which is what my pe- – they're the only people that are bagging me. <coughs> For some reason, it's something – I'm taking something away from them and I don't want to do that because I hate not being liked. I really do. I hate that. Mm. But at the end of the day, like, I like me too and I want to keep liking me too. So I've just got to try and minimise that stuff as much as I can. Yeah. Um, just find the right balance. At the end, we're like we like we said, we're blessed. You know, I'm blessed mm. to, to be here and um. Hopefully I can continue doing this stuff, bro. I feel very blessed, you know, that I have my health, that I get to get up on stage most nights and make random people laugh and yeah. hopefully try and bring some, some joy to their life. And, and then I get to do this podcast with awesome people like yourself. It's, I've, I'm on a good wicket, you know. <laughs> Thanks so much. No worries. Well, uh, we'll leave it there. Danny Shannon, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much, Andrew. Pleasure, mate. It's been another episode of Shit's Gone Sideways. Shit's gone sideways.